If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey folks, welcome to Unsung. I'm Mark. I'm Chris. This is the C part. C part of our REM spectacular. Once it's done, we never have to come back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they are... They are one of those bands. Hard going. Um, No, I mean, no, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'll I'll fucking tell you about hard going, mate. (laughs) I've done Rusty. Yeah. (laughs) I've done fucking... How many Meshuggah albums was it? And I like Meshuggah. Yeah. But... That's hard going, mm-hmm. right? This is not that hard going, right? It's just yeah, it's just a bit bland in places. A lot of places. The first, the first ten years, for example, you most can still most do part. stuff when REM's on in the background. Have you ever tried to do stuff when Meshuggah's on? <laughs> yeah, not, nothing you can really do that's, that makes any sense, <laughs> apart from Twitch. Yeah, um, yeah. So we're on part C, and we've only just left off without a time, which I, I think was. I think it's a, a very skittish, erratic album. As successful as it was, you know, big, big singles, shiny, happy people, fuck me, don't want to hear it. Michael Stipe doesn't want to hear it. You know, it, it happened. Let's leave it in the past. But other stuff like Country Feedback, Texarkana, that are just fantastic. Um, Half a World Away, we both mm-hmm. really liked that one. This could be the saddest I've ever seen Turn to a miracle I lie My mind is racing Just a really interesting change in the band's career That whole kind of indie jangle punk stuff I mean it's only one album away now But it's starting to feel quite far away And it was about to change a lot The band are now very successful Let's Mm -hmm. be clear They are very successful Yet they are also not touring They are in a position Where they could have been doing 18 month arena tours Of the globe And they decided Don't fancy it mate I'm going to stay at home And play 1991 What's that? It's not even Playstation What's it? Super Nintendo? Yeah uh SNES SNES Play a wee bit of SNES Yeah Maybe like Mega Man 4 Yep Mega Man 4 But what did they do instead? 
They wrote another album. They wrote another fucking <laughs> album, mate. That's what they did. They wrote a, a little-known record called Automatic for the People. Another album with an iconic cover. Iconic cover. You know, one thing about this album, I've seen it in just... Oh my God, I'm going to definitely show my age here, right? Because we're going to talk about jewel cases. Mm -hmm. And kids, that's what CDs used to come in. And CDs were plastic discs that had MP3s. Kids don't listen to our show, mate. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Fuck, thank fuck for that. But they they might be in the car and the parent might be making them listen. But anyway, uh, I remember an edition of Automatic for the People where the tray was neon yellow. Mm-hmm. And the cover, I remember that. I remember that. The cover was black that. and white, mm-hmm. but then there were others that were just sort of monochrome. Mm-hmm. And I actually quite liked the neon yellow mm-hmm. one. It was it was pretty cool. It had aesthetic on point. Yeah. After after they got rid of the fact they had no aesthetic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like those those initial those early covers are fairly consistent, but they're just a bit what? What's yeah. this? You know, a bit like I mean, they are. They're all the same color. They're all kind of br- they're all kind of beige, like the music. <laughs> they're all kind of beige. They do remind me of a certain music fan who doesn't like things too strong. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't yeah. want sugar in their coffee. They don't want chilies in their pizza. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They don't want cheese in their pizza. No. Let's be honest. I do want cheese in <laughs> pizza. That's not the problem, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but um, they they had a, they had a good eye for a catchy image. You know, from out of time, which is pretty basic, but just acquired a cultural significance. Even green, the cover of green is pretty iconic, and I do think yeah, document yes. get is better than the others. But by the time they got to automatic for the people, like it was just eye catching. It was like there's that fucking album. That's your major label marketing money right there. It is, know? and it's definitely going to continue uh, for the next couple of years as well. But we'll get to that in due course. Automatic for the People, 1992, as you mentioned earlier on, the album that Kurt Cobain said uh, Nirvana had one more album in them and he hoped it would be as good as that in a similar vein. Peter Can you Buck- imagine? It's actually... I, I, I can't... I mean, when you hear Unplugged... That's what I was going to say. Unplugged imagine. is like... Yeah. That stands instead as a, that obviously as the final Nirvana record and you got to imagine that you know, it would have been something close to that. In saying that though, man, I have to say, and I say this with kindness please go back and listen to our Incesticide episode, uh, the Nirvana episode, for proof of this. Kirk Cobain was an incredibly fickle mm-hmm. guy and I am not convinced that he would have stuck by that because I think he might have done it for a while and said, oh, I'm just not feeling this. He did it with an outro. He did follow through on that. did say the next record after Nevermind was going to be not commercial and it wasn't really. Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing. I actually kind of get the feeling they would have maybe stuck with that. Mm-hmm. I kind of feel like they were really in the groove of like stuff like Milk It and, you know, Scentless Apprentice and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, we'll never know, right? We'll, we'll never, never know. know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I am not entirely convinced that you can take Kurt at his word. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean that to be mean. I just mean he was, yeah. Yeah, he, he was erratic. Yeah. <laughs> and he was a pal of Michael Stipes at this time. He was a very mm-hmm. good friend of Michael Stipes. Um, through Courtney Love, though, I believe, mm-hmm. because Courtney and Michael Stipes were good friends and that's how they got introduced. Automatic for the People is both Peter Buck and Mike Mills's favourite REM record. Interesting bit of trivia. We mentioned Michael Stipes. He's, he's clearly bisexual, pansexual, however you want to, to term it. Uh, during... This period, he had to contend with these constant rumours that he had HIV. Yeah, because he was so skinny. Because he was so skinny. But I think it also obviously reflects society's... 
Freddie Mercury. Existing bias. You know, Freddie Mercury died in 1992, did he? It must have been close to that, yeah, maybe yeah. 1901. Mm-hmm. Um, as in zeitgeist. I mean, it's, I mean, it just is what it is. It's society. It's not, it's not a conscious decision, is it, really? But they still had hang-ups about men who were not straight mm-hmm. and, oh, he looks a bit thin. Maybe he's got AIDS. Yeah. Um, so that was a big deal for Michael Stipe at this time. Um, Automatic for the People is named after a restaurant in Georgia. Mm. Nice. There you go. And John Paul Jones did the strings on it. Well, that's cool. Um, he was really good at that as well, and and Led Zeppelin. He was like exactly, really, really yeah. Good at and that. it's clear mm. that they kind of went for that, and mm. and obviously the being on a major label helped. Um, it's seen as a bit of a melancholy step back from the energy of Out of Time. I mean, there are moments in Out of Time that are not particularly energetic, but there are also others that are far too fucking energetic. Yeah. Um, at this point as well, as we said, they're not touring. So R.E.M. is purely a studio band, really. Um, they were doing live appearances. They were doing, I think they did an MTV Unplugged, but they were, they, were, they were not on the road, and they were not on the road for this album. And this album is... 16 million and upwards Mm -hmm. I think and they were still like nah just don't fancy it to go back to my point right that I made a couple of episodes ago about the fact that were it not for grunge the trajectory of modern rock music in America would have been R.E.M. Like the fact that oh, this came out the same year as Nevermind. Kevin Crows says yes. Yeah, <laughs> this came out the same year as Nevermind, right? So Nevermind completely fucking smashes this in terms of the amount of records are sold in. Don't get me wrong, this still sold a lot of records. And this still... actually came out the year it was after Nevermind. Yeah, so like, if, imagine how many records this would have sold if Nevermind if grunge didn't exist, yeah. right? It's like it would have been way, way more than that, significantly more than that. The kids would have been listening to this. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. It maybe wouldn't have had such a daddish mm-hmm. uh, vibe. I mean, the thing is, okay, we'll go by track by track, right? Because that's the only way to make this case fairly. It is slightly undeserved, the sort of conformity that this album is associated with, I think. Let's start with the first one, Drive, which is fucking sensational music. This is an old country song. What if I ride? What if you walk? This is beautifully composed. Mm-hmm. The starts and the stops, the ebb and the flow. Uh, yet, despite that kind of stuttering sort of momentum, it's incessantly building with mm-hmm. each section. And it's lush as well, yeah. whilst also being quite tragic. Um, it's quite the, forlorn, I mean. It's very forlorn, yeah. The key changes are so smooth mm-hmm. as to feel like they barely happen, which is a skill, really, is a skill. And th- this was a single... I think says a lot about the band mm-hmm. because you do not release this song if you're really looking to court pure mainstream success yeah. because it is an obtuse and understated thing. I also I, I, I want to draw attention as well just to the electrified guitar that just stabs in at two minutes. Mm-hmm. Hey, Yeah, 
just out of nowhere this gentle song has this brilliant guitar refrain that comes in I just think it's an absolute masterclass in writing it really does not sound like the R.E.M. of Fables of the Reconstruction it Mm. doesn't sound like that it's something altogether far more sophisticated and I just I, I, I probably can't overstate the admiration I have for this song in particular it's properly next level to me yeah um, the second track in it, Try Not To Breathe. I will try not to breathe I can hold my head still With my hands and my knees These eyes are the eyes of the old Shivering and bold A great song. Somewhere within the weird folkiness of the waltz time you can almost hear this sort of sparkly indie rock song it could have been if they'd written it five years prior like if you listen to Try Not To Breathe and imagine it with drums and sort of that arpeggiated clean guitar thing and stuff it would it would still work but it wouldn't be that that, that kind of odd sort of mm-hmm. quietly it's quietly trippy mm-hmm. it's got an oddness to it um, they issue a solo or a middle eight in favour of a weird saturated thing as well you know the feedback It's, it doesn't mm-hmm. have a solo. Yeah, I mean, they're really starting to mess about with effects. They're starting to mess about with the studio quite well. Now, like, let's be clear. You're listening to the Unsung Podcast here. This album is definitely not unsung, mm-hmm. but I'm asking you to go with me here. And I'm looking at you, Mark. I'm addressing you. This, this is their best record. Well, certainly half the band thinks so. <laughs> I'm asking you to go with me here, and I'm asking the audience to go with me here, right? There's a phenomenon at play here where the band seem to have intentionally tried to step away from what made them popular in the record immediately prior really the likes of shiny happy people and with the end of the world as we know it and all that kind of stuff because compare drive to those songs you're not trying to get the same crowd mm-hmm. with it with that single but i think genuinely via the sheer brilliance of the writing and the production this album resonated so much not just with that sort of early days indie student crowd, but with my ma, mm-hmm. with your ma, mm-hmm. with everybody's ma, everybody's ma was going, what's that, Rem? Mm-hmm. I quite like them. You know, that this album had a, a, an appeal that I don't even think was intentional. Mm-hmm. I really, really don't. I, I don't think they could have known that it was going to do that. But between them and Scotland, they created just something just astonishing I mean it's easy to forget how normalised and passy these tracks feel in hindsight it's easy to forget for example how much bands like Coldplay have built their castle on this terrain Mm -hmm. you know they rely on this sort of stuff to give context to what they're doing you know you look at the majority of these songs in terms of how much the band shunned the expectations of the audience for starters like the first two tracks in it the audience would be like the fuck is this? This is not REM. It's not until the third track that they actually give the audience in Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight what they'd kind of been waiting for. And I, I think that's incredibly bold. Mm. Um, I think the fourth track, everybody's going to be shouting, everybody hurts though, everybody hurts, cheesy shite. When you're sure you've had enough this life, hang on. 
first off, it was written by Bill, the drummer in the band, not the main songwriter. Somebody who'd songwritten all the way through, but not the main songwriter. What I, I want to blow everybody's mind as well as my own. Everybody Hurts only got to number 29. Yeah, it's not a pop song. What no, the fuck? Yeah. Everybody Hurts yeah. is like, what? I mean, it's it's up there and like, I mean, if you did like the 100 most famous songs of the 90s, yeah. it would be in there. It's perfect for soundtracks and TV shows. You and it know. got to number 29. Yeah, uh-huh. Could R.E.M. have possibly known that Everybody Hurts would become a cultural phenomenon? No fucking way. Look at the songs that had made R.E.M. successful at this point, like Shiny Happy Fucking People mm. and The End of the World As We Know It. And then they go and release Everybody Hurts. There is no fucking way they knew that could have become the cultural fucking totem that it, that it actually is. Yeah. They'd never re- recorded or released anything of that king prior. It's basically a lullaby and it could actually have totally bombed. Did it pave the way for decades of maudlin bollocks? Yes, it absolutely did. It mm-hmm, absolutely mm-hmm. is responsible for so many of the worst, corniest, most bullshit songs of the last 20 years. Yeah. But I don't think that's their fault. They didn't know it was going to do what it was going to do. Uh, and I think what people really forget in light of that is just that this record's actually pretty varied and pretty strange. I mean, look at like New Orleans instrumental number one. Right in the middle of the album, they do this weird fucking like dreamy thing. Mm. It's like a, a country indie version of The Caretaker or something mm. like that. Um, you've got Star Me Kitten, which is very strange. You've got Sweetness Follows, which is a very strange song. I used to wonder why did you It's only Monty got a raw deal when they actually start to kick into like what you might call recognisable REM terrain again. I think that Monty got a raw deal as well. It could either have been on that Christmas list of great songs that weren't actual singles, or if we tie it in with that conversation of R.E.M. overshadowing the quality of some of their album tracks by having these brutally huge singles like Everybody Hurts. Because Monty Got a Raw Deal was just hidden away in between Man in the Moon and, mm-hmm. you know, Sidewinder. And, and, but it's a fucking excellent song. Really, really, really good song. I think it's one of the definitive R.E.M. tracks, actually, mm. if, if you take it 
in and of itself its construction the kind of minor key that it's that it's in uh, the, the fact that it's pessimistic yet kind of buoyant I, I think it's it's a fucking magnificent song um, I think Man in the Moon a wee bit like Sidewinder is a bit of R.E.M. saying to the crowd hey here's a bit of what you want mm-hmm. but kind of on steroids given how huge that song became it's played to death so it's kind of hard to be objective about it now yeah for sure I think it's kind of unfair to suggest that it's anything other than just a very sincere and well written 90s pop tune it's not shit Mm -hmm. you know it's absolutely completely shagged out Mm -hmm. but it's not shit Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear it I don't I certainly don't want to hear it to the end Mm -hmm. but it's not shit yeah and then say a track like Night Swimming photograph on the dashboard taken here Ago. Turn around back so the windshield shows every street light. I quite like Night Swimming. I've yeah. always I've always liked Night Swimming. It's a it's such an odd song mm-hmm. because think about what it actually is. How could they expected that to land as well? Everybody Hurts actually makes maybe more sense than Night Swimming because mm-hmm. Night Swimming is just this cascading arpeggiated piano with a very miasmic sort of floaty construction that doesn't really make a lot of sense and yet there you go video single famous song it's a very odd choice and it connected and I think I'm I'm looking to this to to back me up in that case of like I think with this album R.E.M. we're like all right let's take a wee bit of a step away from the limelight we're not going to tour let's release a good album of shit that we like that's a bit different let's get away from shiny happy people and then it goes and becomes absolutely even more enormous and they're like oh for fuck's sake mm-hmm. well that didn't work and so then they were like right okay everybody wants us to do strummy fucking weepy shit let's do a glam rock record Q 1994 and Monster so Monster so Monster kicks your back doors in doesn't it mm-hmm. like a big fuzzy rock record finally that didn't really connect to me to be honest well let me put you um, in but it is a glam rock record though <laughs> it's a glam rock record This is a different R.E.M. Also, this debuted at number one and was pretty well received. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you know that this album, uh, I don't know if it was the CD version, but certainly the vinyl version was released with a floppy disc (laughs) that contained bonus content. Wow. What was the bonus content? Fuck knows, man. (laughs) Like, what would be 8-bit? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 24 pixels of Michael Stipe's pink face. I don't don't know. He was Mm -hmm. bald at this point, so it would probably be easier to render. Um, It was one of the first... To, to try and do that the bonus content thing and then obviously that led on to DVDs and things like that and uh, what was the enhanced CDs yeah yeah that was another one wasn't it and laser discs put them in your PC mm-hmm. um, apparently the, the story behind Monster is that Bill Berry the drummer and the man responsible for Everybody Hurts and us responsible for all the shit that tried to sound like Everybody Hurts mm-hmm. um, Bill Berry was apparently keen to tour again but to tour again he was determined that they were going to record a rocking record so it was actually fun to tour so they weren't going up on stage with too many songs everybody hurts yeah yeah exactly too many pianos firstly I find this entire record very very warm and that starts with the cover 
because the cover of this record is iconic. It is. The big, out-of-focus, fuzzy monster face on a bright orange background with a blue logo. Just, I mean, it looks so random, mm. but yet it is one of those brilliant things. I mean, you're right, they've got a better marketing department working with them here that just knows it's like hey believe me this is going to work and it fucking works mm-hmm. like it really contributes to, to to your mental image your impression your last mm-hmm. impression of this record but it just feels so warm the saturated tones on it as well and the fact that yeah there's some down moments but there's also an awful lot of positivity on the, on this record um, it's a whole new approach uh, I think not just since their earlier stuff but even just since the previous album since Automatic for the People um, they also they toured this record which was actually the first time since Green in 19, the Green tour in 1989 as we mentioned uh, the support on the tour uh, included Sonic Youth and Radiohead yeah and there's a Radiohead connection with a song I Disappear we'll come across it soon and actually, uh, Michael Stipe and Tom York, I think, were pretty close at this yeah, point. Yeah, they were good friends. Uh, How to Disappear Completely is inspired by Michael Stipe. Yeah, exactly. So they, I think they actually worked on some stuff as well. I think there's some recordings of them singing on each other's songs live on tour mm. that you can pick up in bootlegs. I'll take you over. The first song in this. Uh, I need to give a little bit of my own history with it. What's the frequency, Kenneth? What's the frequency, Kenneth? I fucking love this song. It's a good song. I, I mm-hmm. fucking love this song. So I picked this up on cassette when I was about 13. Um, it must have been one of the earliest things I actually went and sought out. And, you know, 13 years old, that year was massive for me as as, as a young music enthusiast trying to work out... As a youth. Uh, trying to work out who I was. Um, Kurt Cobain had died in April of that year. And actually, I, I've said this before, I remember the night he died, I was lying on the couch with a terrible migraine, channeling his blown apart head I think mm-hmm. um, but I remember when that happened and it was it was literally just months later that I nicked a copy of Nevermind and got ferociously into it instantly mm-hmm. like just freakishly like sitting on my floor with my mouth open going what the fuck and my mum walking by going what's that you're listening to mum mm-hmm. doesn't talk like that but she'd be she'd hate it if I mm-hmm. did her actual voice mm-hmm. um, but by the end of the year I was a huge Nirvana fan only just realising what Cobain's death meant really to the music scene and to that entire movement and I wanted volume but also wanted hooks and I think to be honest having tried it but being pretty unmoved by metal you know Enter Sandman and all that shit I'm like uh, whatever I found a niche in the kind of grunge movement and that, that kind of alternative punk movement and I was gorging in all those bands at a time when it was pretty well catered for and that, that kind of brought me back to Monster which I knew was there but I revisited it in a, in a bit more detail. Um, I think What's the Frequency, Kenneth, is very sweet-natured. It's upbeat. It's sort of like a PG alt-rock track mm-hmm. of the era. But 
God damn it, it's a really great song. It, it actually appeals to the same bit of me, I think, that really likes classic Weezer. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's got a lot in common with that. The real joy in just writing something fuzzy and good and pleasant. Um, the saturated guitars were very distinct from the band's earlier stuff, obviously. The backwards guitar mm-hmm. solo that's yeah. in it, I think, that's sh- good. I like it, that. it showed that they were getting, again, a bit more inventive. We saw a bit mm-hmm. of that on um, Try Not To Breathe in, in the last album. Um, they've all got that sneaky uh, don't fuck with me in the very last line mm-hmm. um, cheeky boys uh, talking about glam credentials crush with eyeliner the second song Another song I absolutely unironically love to this day. Um, I loved the video at the time where they got a Japanese band to pretend to be them, <laughs> which was great. I, it, just uh, the vibrato, for example, and that rolled off saturated Rickenbacker, very distinct in that tune. I think it just skirts the mainstream edge of grunge music really well and okay I, I acknowledge and I said it earlier on I think maybe it was slightly following the trends of the time that might be a fair observation it might be a fair critique of this album or grunge is in and suddenly REM have gone from playing jangles to playing fuzzy guitars but given how much those grunge bands owed to REM and given the fact that REM had been consistently modifying their sound all the way but especially from like document onwards, it, it still doesn't seem all that contrived that mm. they would do this. I mean, I, I take the perspective on board when people were critical of the band, but I think both are val- valid. I, I think it's it's hard to know how much of it was following and how much it was leading. But I do think what is very true is that REM tended, as I said, to push back against the spotlight. Not that they didn't want to be successful. <laughs> um, I get there's a good argument against that coming up as well. But Automatic had gone for something, as I said, that would shake off the shiny happy fans and then Automatic had exploded. This, again, felt like they were trying to shake off too much of that sort of beige mainstream mm. attention for mm. Automatic. And ironically, this also sold massively as well. So shaking off stuff wasn't really working. And I, I think that's largely just because the songs were really well written. I, I do acknowledge when, I, when I'm saying that they didn't try and court success that the track uh, Strange Currencies in particular flies in the face of that because they basically re-released Everybody Hurts with that tune. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you mean to me But I want to turn you out, turn you up, figure you out I want to take you on So again, maybe they were just a wee bit conflicted who doesn't want to be big and celebrated but at the same time you get the feeling they didn't want to be tedious I I don't know but there's a lot of variation on this I I quite like Bang and Blame Bang 
Bang and Blame It was his second single On this one after mm. What's the frequency uh, Do you know that Rain Phoenix Does the backing vocals Oh that's cool Yeah because it was like uh, River Phoenix's death Michael Stipe and him Were quite friendly mm. And that was That hit him quite hard I think the third track on it King of Comedy Just doesn't sound like R.E.M. Honestly, I think it's a really good song. It's very glam rock. Um, I think Star 69 is like a beefier, trippier version of something that could have been on Fables or Life's Rich Pageant or one of those early albums. Funnily enough, Star 69 wasn't a single in this album, but it's still got to number 74 in the charts, mm-hmm. just because of the amount of people that phoned up radio mm-hmm. stations asking for it. Strange Currencies, as I've said, it's another lullaby, and it's very probably something that makes this album better, but also a bit undermined. You know, I think people see it as just being schmaltzy and a bit corny. Um, I think it's a great song. I really do. But I do also understand that it's a bit of an eye roll if you're not on board with it. Yeah. Um, the track Tongue. think it's a really interesting tune it demonstrates a band miles away from where they started um the fact that he does like a kind of falsetto set against this almost like a motown tune mm-hmm. it, it shows that they're fucking about with stuff it, it also contributes to that warmth of the album as well um and i mentioned it earlier on i want to kind of dwell on let me in a wee bit because let me in the 10th track is a big deal for me a regular feature in my mixtapes at the time which by the way are playlists for mm-hmm. anybody born after 2001 um, it was written mid-sessions uh, because the band had already done the first part of the sessions for Monster when Kurt Cobain committed suicide so it was written pretty quickly it was played on Kurt Cobain I think it was the mint green Fender Jaguar that was mm-hmm. given to Mike Mills and actually Mike Mills had to restring it because he's right-handed and Cobain was left-handed and the track itself, written by Michael Stipe for Kurt Cobain, as we mentioned, River Phoenix also kind of featured in that kind of sense of loss for that, that period of writing. Minimal percussion on it, it's just a tambourine that shows up midway, but otherwise the whole tune is propelled by that ultra-saturated guitar. Bit of, I think it's a bit of like phaser that's going on in it yeah. as well. Uh, 
and Michael Stipe's vocal plus there's an organ that appears in the latter half. I I found it incredibly touching. Um, I mean, there's let's say that there's there's different ways that song could have been executed, right? There's there's an alternate version on the twenty fifth anniversary reissue of Monster. And it kind of dials back the guitar processing and it leaves the vocal naked. And that version certainly highlights how good Michael Stipe is in the studio, but I don't think it brings much else to the song. I just love that tender brutality of the album version. I mean... I'm using brutality in a very qualified sense here. We're talking about REM, not nails. But, mm-hmm. you know, they could have done this with a piano. They could have done it with an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. They could have done some, again, really maudlin, self-indulgent, melancholy thing. But they went for this big, saturated, ferocious, but tender thing. And I, I just think it's, it's, it's excellent. I think it's an excellent way. And it, it sort of did justice to the subject matter. Yeah. Imagine Cobain loving that song. Mm-hmm. You, you think you really would have loved that song. The tour for the album itself, very successful. However, it was plagued with problems because, for example, during a 1995 show in Lausanne, Switzerland, Bill Berry collapsed on stage with a brain aneurysm and Mike Mills and Michael Stipe both also had to go to hospital at various points for operations. That all said, the tour sold brilliantly and I think it was actually inspired a bit by Radiohead. The band went on tour with an 8-track and got into the habit of recording sound checks mm. and ideas backstage to try and capture some sort of like loose collection of demos and that sort of grew arms and legs discussions began about why don't we just actually record the album like this why don't we write the album on the road and then go and just capture it in its essence live using things like sound checks and live takes and things like that um and that led to new adventures in hi-fi which we're going to revisit in the final part of this in a bit more detail but suffice to say with uh new adventures in hi-fi they ended the mainstreaming with bill second phase Mm. of rem and thus we arrived in rem phase three yeah there's not a lot to say here if i'm totally honest well (laughs) there isn't there isn't right it's a huge transition period right first of all i would say that um new adventures in hi-fi was recorded prior to the departure of Jefferson Holt, the long-term manager, right? So he's gone. Mm-hmm. And then Bill Berry, he leaves for phase three. Um, boys had a brain aneurysm, fair mm-hmm. enough. And he made sure, you know, if you guys are going to split up, I'm not going to go. But they were like, we're not going to split up. Don't worry, Bill. You can go in good conscience. And then Scott Litt as well. He fell off the scene. They stopped recording with Scott Litt, which... Uh, is significant because production becomes uh, an issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Michael Stipe was quoted at the time as, uh, when Bill left actually saying, are we still REM? I guess a three-legged dog is still a dog. It just has to learn to run differently. Um, they became a trio with hired guns and we did mention that the, the calibre of those guns, see that's a fucking mm-hmm. good consistent metaphor yeah. there, uh, was, was pretty high. The posies, screaming trees, nine-inch nails, atoms for peace. And uh, yeah, and a new phase of songwriting uh, was underway. It is interesting to note, though, that apparently the decision to transition to electronic stuff was already made. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because Bill left. It, apparently that had been the chat. Mm-hmm. I don't know if perhaps Bill was like, my health's not good and I just don't fancy this era of drum machines. But certainly it was already something that the band had supposedly decided they were going to have a shot with. And bear in mind that not long prior to this, bands like the Eels had sort of carved out a niche in like Indie Tronica. Mm-hmm. 
kind of similar to REM in some ways, but very different in the way that the uh, the records were arranged and delivered. Had Peter Buck not already started buying like synthesizers and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, I think he had. He anyway. got quite into them, yeah. I. Mm-hmm. And it's also worth noting that New Adventures in Hi-Fi sold about a third of Automatic for the People and about half as many as Monster. And despite the fact that it got to number two in the USA and it got to number one in the UK, it did represent a change in fortunes when you looked at the bottom line and their standing with the record mm-hmm. label. Things were shifting. And that led to Up in 1998. It's kind of hard to know what was expected of the record at the time. Uh, I mean, I was into REM and I really was struggling to remember how I felt in terms of anticipating this. Um, they'd been the same band for, as I said, 17 years. Bill was a key songwriter. He was an anchor to that organic vibe that the band had, you know, the guitar, bass, drums thing. And likewise, losing Scotland was unavoidably going to have an impact on, on how they came across in record. That era heralded the potential for stuff to be quite abstract, I think, like for them to move in different directions, reflecting what was the zeitgeist at the time. Uh, Indytronica was a, was a big one. When when you listen to it up, it's uh, it's a departure, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. for sure. Airport Man, uh, the first track on it is very understated. Honestly, it's just kind of a confusing opening. But you've got to say, the band no doubt spent a lot of time on the, the track order and that decision. And I suppose from that, you can only infer that they were making clear that they were not out to try and win everybody back with some big slutty pop banger, you know, on track one of this new album. They were going to do it on their terms. The second track, Lotus, was their reasonably decent sized single, I guess, at the time, in a very 90s sort of way. I mean, I think it's it kind of sounds like a much better version of Top Loader, ultimately, <laughs> with that piano sound. So here's the thing, I mean, let's just be clear, this album is a bit pastel and a bit bland, which is maybe to be expected a wee bit, but I will say in its defence, it has a definite vibe, and if you can make peace with that, it's actually tonally really consistent, and that's something that I think, out of time, and maybe even automatic for the people, were not. They were quite erratic albums, from song to song, whereas I think Up actually flows pretty well. It stays within its lanes quite mm. well. That's f- interesting, yeah. Yeah, the, the fourth track, Hope, makes some nice use of the new electronic al- angle. It's, it's pretty unpretentious but it's a, a little riff on a drum machine loop and some synths and it's not a wow song but it's it's quite likable the fifth one at my most beautiful it's uh, a good song that was a single it's fine you know? it's got the blushness of like Brian's Beach Boys orchestration it, you it know? sounds very Beach Boys mm. doesn't it I
um, it's, it's okay The Apologist I mean I think I would have liked to have heard The Apologist with a band that still included Bill played as a guitar bass drums band I wanted to apologise for everything I was so I'm sorry I'm so sorry I'm so sorry the recording is very robotic and it lacks a kind of organic quality, although the chorus is a beautiful lift in that one. Um, I think that the standout track in this album for me was Walk Unafraid. So, uh, and I th- this is another track that my band messed around with back in the day. Uh, Colin, who'll be listening, the guitarist, was a huge REM fan to the extent of buying blouses with big floral cuffs mm-hmm. and waistcoats and really modelling himself on, on Peter Buck. I think Walking Afraid's a brilliant song. Uh, I think it's got that whole pessimistic energy that made the best REM singles, basically. Um, it's a shame that it arrived out with the original band era because I think, on the record, it's kind of a wash with synths. And they're not bad synths, but it sounds a bit overproduced. Mm-hmm. Um, are they REM? I don't know if they are. a tune that certainly works better live Um, there's a collection they've got a lot of live collections let's be clear but the German broadcast collection from 2001 has a particularly good version of this it really benefits with the extra BPM as well and then track 11, Day Sleeper. From a personal perspective, this is actually quite a significant track for me. Mm-hmm. It's very vintage REM, I think. I like that song. And it, it could have been on any of the previous four records yeah, from Green totally. Onwards. Um, it's got a very different production feel and it, it harkens back a lot for me because I got this cassette for my birthday one year and I'll be honest, my family were pretty broke at the time, right? So I'm about, oh, I don't know, 17, something like that. Not a lot of money kicking about. I get this cassette on my birthday. It's a, it's a cassette single. You know, it's a very modest birthday. But I have to say, like, I rinsed that tape. Mm-hmm. Like, I really rinsed it. Uh, I, I played it a lot. So I have quite a lot of affection for that tune. Mm-hmm. And it's probably one of the outliers on that record, but I do think, as, as I said, I, I don't feel particularly invested in that album. Yeah. That's probably the word I would use. Mm-hmm. But I do think... It is one of the most tonally consistent. It, it, well, certainly since their very, very early days. Mm-hmm. But it really sounds like it was all done at the same time with similar things in mind. Yeah. 
Um, and they followed that in 1989 quickly with Man on the Moon the Andy Kaufman biopic came out and they had one of the main songs in it obviously it was named after mm. their, their track uh, but they brought out The Great Beyond which is a pretty strong single actually it, it caused a stir at the time I was really pleased to hear it Um, it felt a bit more authentically REM Mm -hmm. Uh, and then Reveal came out in 2001 now hot take this is a very very underrated record Mm. (laughs) and I would say that Proportionally speaking, and this does not mean this is my favourite record, but proportionally speaking, this is their most underrated by dint of how harshly it's criticised compared to how it actually is, in my opinion. I I think this would have been a very thorny but defensible choice for the show. It was actually critically well received at the time, but in retrospect has fared very, very poorly. It, It tanks in the rankings, and I'll go into some of the rankings shortly, but I mean, it's just abysmal in the rankings to the extent that I actually thought I'd somehow mixed it up with one of their other albums in my head and I had to go back and double check. I was kind of gaslighting myself. For me, this record shows that the band had settled in to the kind of post-drummer period. They were doing a lot of stuff electronically. Yeah, there's drums on it, but they were writing as a trio. The studio on it is still much more apparent than in the Scotland stuff, but it felt a bit more natural than on Up. Pound for pound, I think the songs on here are as good as many of their albums. Um, are people just madly against the polished sound or the fact that it was kind of like a little bit pedestrian because, let's be honest, they were getting a bit old and a bit passe. think they sort of became a, a slight middle-aged eye roll just because people hadn't been about for them and they were like who are these old guys mm-hmm. fuck this and it's just not cool and cool's such an unquantifiable and ephemeral thing but it just wasn't a cool album they weren't a cool band at a cool stage of anything mm-hmm. you know what the fuck was going on here like 2001 new metal mm-hmm. right so it's like they were just anachronistic mm-hmm. but actually i think it's i think it's pretty decent Funny thing, I'm saying all those things about cool, but I should caveat that by saying Accelerate probably did do better than it, even though it came out later. But anyway, in terms of the tracks, very quickly, the lifting, the opening track, I think it's just a nice tune. Once I know. Electronics are used really well. It's got some really nice hooks and some really nice melodic changes in it. Uh, I think the track All the Way to Reno, it's a bit lethargic at the BPM that it has on the album, but it's not a bad song and it, it's good live. 
I think the track Disappear it has I like a- Disappear That's the one that's um, uh, So Tom York was inspired By Michael Stipe Hence why he wrote How to Disappear Completely Because that's what he felt As though he had to try And do live Because it's stage fright How to Disappear Completely in front of people It's um, it's a beautiful song Yeah, yeah so It's got a shanty vibe to it Yeah Disappear is like His response to that song Tom York had told him He'd written that Because Michael Stipe had told him That's kind of what he tries to do live And he was like Well here's my version of the same kind of idea. I looked you know? for you everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there he was gyrating in the middle of the yeah. stage. It's but interesting, it, it's a really rich song, it's quite a grand sounding song. It is, man, you know? it is. I think the chord changes in the chorus are great. I mean, I think the song works great. I think the production sort of smothers it a wee bit, but I think it's a really nice bit of music. And I could have I could have heard it back on the green kind of era or maybe like out of time, around about like half a world away. It's got something in common with that kind yeah. of thing. It's a little touch of electronics in it as well. Yeah. Just a little touch, which I think is probably a radiohead thing. Yeah. And and how well REM handled electronics is up for debate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um I mean there are definitely a few tunes on here that are totally pointless. I mean, beat a drum, summer turns to high. Fucking pointless songs. Imitation of Life is a huge single for them. Imitation of Life is a good single, yeah. Really um, good it, it's right back to peak out of time era it is, REM. It, is. Mm-hmm. It, it really sounds like that. production isn't as good as that it isn't as fresh and as energetic but it musically the writing is is back there um maybe maybe it tries to ape it too closely in fact maybe that's part of the problem i don't know but i think it's a good song by their standards and i also think uh and it's a guilty pleasure if there is such a thing but i'll take the rain After a couple of filler tunes that precede it, this is a really strong penultimate track. Okay, it starts pretty unremarkably, but it builds really well. It's got some proper gushy sentiments in it that just get me in the feels, like they really do. Um, and some great dramatic sweeps. Um, you know, you, you put this song on a record of theirs again around about 1991 and tell me it doesn't become like a fan favourite. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a really pretty, gentle, likeable bit of music. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that album's appraised very, very harshly. It was followed by In Time, The Best Of, a, a really good collection of Best Ofs actually, 2003. Uh, Barring the omission maybe of stuff like Monty Got a Raw Deal and some of the other great album tracks like Pretty Persuasion and stuff that we've we've talked about. Um it's it's really strong. It also includes the single Bad Day, which I think is actually a really strong bit of classic It's yeah. a really good song, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really think they nailed it on that one. Um it was a good way to sell that collection. The papers would lie. I 
Yeah, and then 2004, Around the Sun, and I have very little to say about this because at this point in my life, I had moved past R.E.M. Box says this just wasn't really listenable because it sounds like what it is a bunch of people that are so bored with the material that they can't stand it anymore <laughs> yeah it fares very very badly on lists I mean in terms of the tracks I do think the first one Leaving New York is competent it's sweet it's got a pleasant chorus you know Departure and Loss it's melancholy but it's also pretty cheesy but you know Cheesy and R.E.M. did become kind of synonymous at a certain mm. point <sighs> I don't know, it's the sort of song you can imagine being at like a Glasgow Green show and a bunch of middle-aged people putting their arms around each other's shoulders and swaying to it. It's yeah. that kind of tune. <laughs> Electron Blues reminds me of some very bland placebo from the later era. The Outsiders, Jesus fucking Christ, fucking Q-tip. Q-tip, yeah. Mm -hmm. Throwing some hip-hop into the mix, because hip-hop worked so well on the previous stuff, didn't it? A man walks away when every muscle says to stay. How many yesterdays, they each weigh heavy. Who says what changes may come? Who says what we call home? I know you see right through me, my luminousness fades, the dust provides the inner. And, I mean, just to shame it, uh, the seventh track, Wanderlust, is just stinking. This is very clearly not the bubbly, misfit, jangle punk in 1982, but it's maybe not fair to critique it on that basis, right? But, yeah, yeah let's just forget about it. Yeah, um, well, so the next record is Accelerate, right? Yep, Accelerate, mm-hmm. 2008. So Peter Buck said that, personally, he hated Around the Sun. Well, hated is too hard. I hated the fact it wasn't as good as it should have been. And uh, he even said that Michael Stipe was going... You know, if you make another bad record, it's over. Yeah. And then they made it, that's when they were making Accelerate. They're like, it's got to be a good record. Yeah. I guess it, it needs to be seen if it's a good record by RDM standards, but it is certainly. A unique record by their standards. It's a much, sure. much better record. Yeah, for it's, sure. It, I, I didn't really engage with it at the time, but it seems to have been a bit of a return to form, certainly critically. Going back to it now, I think it seems obvious that the title, for example, is a nod to the fact that the band just had to fucking speed up and kick things back up a gear. And, and they, they did it fast as well. They did the record quickly as well. They recorded it really quickly. They mixed it in 10 days. It's, yeah, not getting caught up in the studio yeah. with all the techniques and overproduction. Stipe said we spent less time making this record than we have in 20 years. Yeah. Um, Colin, a uh, listener to the show, good friend of mine, bandmate from back in the day, he, he was supplying me with all the inside info because he stuck with them. And Colin tells me that they, they workshopped these tunes in a wee venue in Dublin in the form of live rehearsals to a limited audience before going back into the studio. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like as a proxy for touring, effectively. You go on tour, you try workshopping your new song, see what goes over see what doesn't go over they actually ended up releasing some of the highlights of those sessions on a collection called 39 Songs live at the Olympia Dublin Mm. Um, it's good it's worth listening to actually and uh, also Peter Buck just dingied all the synths 
Yeah. Got the axes back at the cupboard. Yeah. And that really helped. It seems like it maybe this album took one giant effort to recapture some of that youthful energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe, debatably, that last big effort used up the last of that energy. And yeah, the album does occasionally stray into Counting Crows, but I guess that's what happens when older guys, you know, they're trying to gun it one more time. Mm-hmm. The first track, Living Well's The Best Revenge, is a fairly killer opening tune. Yeah, it's a good song. Um, I don't think many people saw like a high tempo belter kicking things off, given yeah. what had gone before. And it does seem to be a band sort of shaking themselves out of days, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, it lacks that sort of brilliant, open, spacious, energetic Scott Lit production. Again, it's a track that I would have loved to have heard with the classic lineup back in maybe they say the Monster era. Uh, it, you can actually hear it on their 2009 collection, Live at the Olympia, and it sounds great. It's a, it's a better version actually than the album version They were still clearly capable of writing good tunes um, The third one in that Supernatural, Super Serious Everybody here Comes from somewhere That they would just as soon forget In disguise That's a good song, I like that as that, well. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it, but it reminded me of Beverly Hills by Weezer mm-hmm. in the sense that it's just something fun. And yeah, it's going, so big and bombastic. Exactly, you know? mm-hmm. yeah. But, I mean, otherwise, I'm not massively au fait with that album, but I do know that it's, you know, it's it's probably one that's going to age better, certainly, mm-hmm. than the likes of Up and yeah. Reveal seem to have. Yes. And then their final album, Collapse Into Now from 2011, this one song. Apparently, according to the knowledgeable Colin, <laughs> the band knew it would be their last when they recorded it, but they hadn't actually announced that. Yeah, um, their deal with Warner Bros. was coming to an end. Yeah, and mm-hmm. they just had no intention of really continuing. Uh, as much as I concede that they stayed beyond their best I think it's mercifully short overhang, if you know what mm. I mean. There are plenty of bands out there that have released a lot more records beyond their creative peak. Yeah. Um, and I think R.E.M.'s third phase records do have some great tunes in them. You know, Hot Take, perhaps as many great tunes as their first phase. Mm. Is that controversial? I don't think so. Um, but I would say that the performance and the energy, for obvious reasons, is not the equal of the first phase. Mm. You want to know some of this is studio discussion around this record? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, so they, had, they wanted to make some decisions about going forward and they thought, well, they all independently arrived at the conclusion that this was a chance to go out on a high. Buck said that the final decision to end the band came when Michael Stipe remarked that I need to be away from this for a long time. And then Buck just suggested, how about forever? And that's the decided to break up. Well, <laughs> you can't tell if that was passive aggressive or just like really frank. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've been friends for so long, it probably was just like, well, how about just, how about just forever? And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, the record's pretty stodgy. Um, I've I've never heard it all the way They through. feel alive, right? They feel alive in this, in this record, but the songs just aren't there. Yeah. Hey, baby, if this is not a challenge, just means that I love you as much as I 
Yeah, um, I mean, I tried to go back to back, but I just I couldn't get there. There's some fuzzy rock stuff on it. It's decent. It doesn't go for that lo-fi indie-tronica thing that they did in Up, but there are better fuzzy tunes on the likes of Monster by far. The fourth track in it, Oh My Heart, I think it's it's nice. It's a bit of a highlight. This place is the beat of my heart. Oh my heart. Oh my heart. It references out a time automatic kind of period, you know, in the folkiness and, you know, accordions and three, three timings with this band, they're, they're friends. Mm. And so you can't really go wrong. But other than that, it kind of passed me by. And yeah, and I guess just to conclude their back catalogue, I did a wee dig into what are other people saying. Um, a few of the websites that we like to go to, louder.com. Around the Sun Dead Last mm-hmm. <laughs> Consequence.net Around the Sun Dead Last Vinyl Mapper Around the Sun Dead Last Stereo Gum Around the Sun Dead Last And Rate Your Music Reveal Dead Last <laughs> Fuck off What? That's fucking ridiculous man Anyway So uh, Louder.com had put Reveal at 11 out of 15 um, Other places it made 14 out of 15 11 out of 15 15 out of 16 I mean, I don't understand why Reveal's taking so much fucking dog's abuse. I, I think Reveal is a far better album than that, but, well, what the fuck do I know? Things like Out of Time, uh, that was coming in at, like, number eight on a lot of lists. Document was at number two for Louder. Automatic was at number one a couple of times. It was at number three. What was interesting was that New Adventures almost always came in the top five. Mm-hmm. Six on one list, I think, but otherwise five, four, three, never two or one, but always in and around then. And that's why I made that kind of hot take point of maybe reveal is proportionally more underrated. Mm-hmm. It's far worse, but it's so dismissed that I'm like, come on, yeah, like, absolutely lambasted. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's not that fucking bad, <laughs> mm-hmm. like that bit, I just don't get, but yeah, I mean, to conclude. This part of the show, the third era of R.E.M., I I think people interested in hearing later R.E.M. stuff are probably much better served listening to some of the numerous official live records because R.E.M.'s later stuff especially massively benefits for being played live. It massively benefits for real drums, Mm -hmm. for starters. But they just tend to play it a bit faster. Michael's performances are more juiced up. I just, it's it's good. Mm -hmm. It's a good way to hear them and it's the only way to give them a fair hearing as songs. Yeah, I, I don't think the studio was R.E.M.'s friend post-Scotland. I'll just be honest. I think mm. they laboured in the studio. They got too into the weeds of things and it all became a little bit mulchy mm. and it lacked that. Like you said, when they mixed faster, it seemed to help. Accelerate seems to benefit from that. So yeah, I think that last period's kind of characterised by that as well. And unfortunately for those last records, some of the songwriting I would suggest is good. It does not get to live up to its potential on the albums. So go and try and find it on a live record. Uh, And that brings us back to our choice record, which we're going to visit in side D of this double vinyl gatefold edition of R.E.M. with floppy disc included. Mm -hmm. And we will get to that uh, next time. Yes. What say you of their back catalogue, Mark? Um, To summarise. It's just... When they're good, they're really good, but for the most part, over the piece, they're not They're not often that good, <laughs> you know? Like, they've got more shit records than good, consistent records. Yeah. 
But that's a feature of any band that was going for that's been going for ages. But I don't think there's any band that's been going for a long time that you can say if you can get three records back to back and you've been going for if you've got fifteen records and you manage to get three back to back, then that's brilliant. That's exactly what you want. Yeah. Very rarely do bands that have a lot of records get to that. I mean, try to think of some of the bands that I like Iron Maiden did two, three records back to back that were pretty good, but they've got like I think almost twenty or something now, <laughs> and they're mostly pish. So you're talking about painful past episodes of mm-hmm. research. That was one of them for yeah. me. Yeah, Slayer have got maybe three consistently good records back to back, and a couple of other decent ones throughout. You know, REM just seemed to hit the the strides when they hit a major label and decided to stop touring. Mm. You know, yeah, that's when they really hit their stride. Yeah. Um, they had three good records back to back. Technically four, if you want to add in Monster. Do you think that longevity that the band enjoyed was partly due to that decision not to tour at the peak of their career when things could have become so fucking overwhelming? Possibly. I think they probably seen it coming after Green, you know. Um, they probably got a taste of it with the end of the world as we know and stuff like that yeah. before they were on a major and made a, a smart decision just to not... It's a really interesting decision mm. in hindsight and it yeah. may be the thing that stopped them becoming the cautionary tale Mm-hmm. Of of the past, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we'll come back and we'll dive into the the main event, which is new adventures in hi-fi. In the next episode, let's go. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.